Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this, the fourth in our summer series of Rare Book School lectures. Tonight's lecture is generously sponsored by the Friends of Rare Book School. Tradition is not a matter for traditionalists. They produce traditionalism, which is of no use. Tradition is produced by true innovators who keep it alive. This perspicacious observation is found in Franz Zeyer's 1990 essay, Rightness and Lightness, Thoughts on the Book as an Object of Use. And it might well be read today as a fitting prolepsis for the work of tonight's speaker, Russell Moret, a type designer and private press printer, doing genuinely lapidary work in New York City. He began printing in San Francisco as a teenager before apprenticing with Peter Koch in Berkeley and our own John Christensen at the Firefly Press in Somerville, Massachusetts. He set up his own press at the Center for Book Arts in New York in 1993 and has been printing and publishing books ever since. At some point in the 1990s, he became disillusioned with the printed typographic book as he had been approaching it, and he proceeded to spend a decade or so dividing himself, uh, devoting himself to the study of geometric and pre-typographic alphabetic forms. These intensive and prolonged studies gradually led him back to the printed book. He completed his first typeface in 2008, and in 2011 began working to convert some of his type designs into new metal typefaces. Since then, to the best of my knowledge, he's produced two metal typefaces and four suites of metal ornaments. There may be more. There probably are. He is sedulous. In 2009, he was awarded the Rome Prize in Design from the American Academy in Rome. In 2013, Mark Dimination, a name you might recognize at the Library of Congress, initiated the process of acquiring his archive of type and book design for our National Library. Timothy Barrett at the Iowa Center for the Book made the paper for his innovative Hungry Bibliophiles project. Russell has taught and lectured widely on letterpress printing, on bookbinding, and on the history of the book, as well as the history of letter forms. His books and his manuscripts are in public and private collections throughout the world, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Victorian Albert Museum, and the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library at the University of Virginia. Please join me in welcoming Russell Murray. Thank you. The introductions just keep getting better and better. Um, I'm very happy to be here, and uh, you know I love places like this because whether we know each other or not, you are my people. <laughs> I love book people, and. Uh, 
The, although I'm blushing a little bit, I'm at complete ease in your presence. And uh, so after spending a day here, I can only imagine how exhausted you all are. And uh, I know that I am the wall guarding cocktail hour. Uh, so I'm going to try to keep it fun and fast. And uh, last night, Tim described Michael as someone who never says the word um. I say um all the time. I'm perfecting it. So despite that, I'll try to keep it fast. So I'm going to give a 25-minute-ish talk, and then, uh, which deals with the ideas. And then I have books here that we can look at. And um, can we get the lights? Um, so uh, by necessity, I'm giving sort of the advertising jingle version of or treatment of ideas that require really a more symphonic space to deal with in depth. But, you know, that's what we get. And so the idea is to give some ideas out and start a conversation. And um, in order to do that, I'm going to start by just reading out two basic ideas that I take for granted, which might, you might not, just, but it'll help uh, with the discussion. So the first is, that typefaces and books are subject to the same cultural, political, and economic forces as any other art form. The shapes of typefaces and the contents of books, literary, graphic, or otherwise, are therefore manifest expressions of an age's art historical moment. In the same way that the British private press must be viewed within the context of industrialism in order to be understood, the 21st century private press cannot be separated from the technological and political environment of today. Now I'm just going to stop there and go back. I added and non-imperial to the title of this. Um, and so the purpose of my talk tonight is to describe to you what I mean by both of those things. So I forgot to say that. The second primer is that alphabetical form, calligraphic, typographic, etc., conveys innate textual and historical content. And so to dive right into imperial and alphabetical form conveying content, we'll begin with this, which everyone here knows, uh, the inscription at the base of Trajan's column. Um, the lettering on this inscription in the popular imagination represents the apotheosis of what we call the imperial capitalis quadrata letter. And it is a great example of a letter form that brings with it a content. Um, it speaks of authority, stability, certainty, um, and the, there's no other letter that quite is as loaded as this. But most people outside of this room are familiar with this letter, not from this inscription, but from Carol Twombly's ubiquitous uh, Trajan typeface, which was issued by Adobe in 1989. And uh, our treatment of this type as a society is uh, uh, an example of our the greatest effort that's ever been applied to rob meaning from a letter form. The, uh, um, a, a letter that traditionally speaks of authority and, and stability is most often implied or employed by people who are seeking to deceive. Um, and uh, we see it everywhere. <laughs> And this is just one of my favorite examples, uh, Michelob Ultra, which I think in England wouldn't even qualify as beer. Um, their ad on the New York City subway, spend less time sitting, Carpe 2012. And 
Of course, the makers of uh, Michelob Ultra want nothing more for you to spend the summer in a shaded room, sitting on your barca lounger, drinking their watery beer. And, uh, uh, and this is a great example of how this letter is used. But despite the absurdity of the situation, the letters, and with the light, light streaming through them and the drop shadow and everything else, uh, these letters have an undeniable monumental quality. And it is this quality that um, is interesting to me because the, and has been interesting throughout history to other people because the imperial letter form is something that has been revived with regularity throughout history. And it is typically revived at a point, alphabetically speaking, um, in which a hyper-personalization of alphabetical form has threatened to sever the link between form and textual content. Uh, so basically, a proliferation of lettering styles that uh, sort of cease to be understandable to a broad range of people. And then someone, an emperor, an idealist, or both, comes and revives the letter. And so the first revival is the Carolingians in their manuscripts, uh, the sort of paterfamilias of their hierarchy of scripts. The next is by the Normans in southern Italy, whose letters are the least um, visually like imperial uh, lettering, but they successfully replicated the context of the imperial inscription, a large, horizontally laid out public inscription. And then the most uh, widely understood revival is that by the Italian humanists in the 15th century. So in the 1460s, the imperial letter was revived in architecture, calligraphy, painting, and it happened to coincide with the advent of a new technology, uh, printing. And so rather than just being stuck in a manuscript in some monastery or on some church wall in Salerno, all of a sudden the imperial letter or the typographic interpretation of imperial lettering was cast in metal, printed, and dispersed over a wide group. And it took on a secondary semiotic meaning of it being sort of the graphic calling card of an enlightened humanist. Um, and then the fourth and most recent revival was the British private press at the end of the 19th century. And now there are two other images on this timeline that I find particularly interesting. The first is Giovanni Francesco Cresci's uh, A and B from his writing manual Il Perfetto Scrittore from 1560, which up to that point was the most genetically accurate revival of imperial lettering uh, to date. Brush-drawn letters, cut in wood, purposefully under-inked in the printing to better appreciate the contours of their forms. Uh, but what's interesting about Cresci's manual is rather than once they have this perfect sort of revival, rather than continuing a revival of pure imperial form, Cresci marks the beginning of a movement away from imperial form into the Baroque letter. His other lettering styles really precipitated that. And so if you fast forward to 1989, you then have Carol Twombly's uh, typeface Trajan, which again, the most genetically authentic revival of imperial lettering that's ever existed, which coincides with the advent of a new technology, the postscript language and the digital medium. Um, and again, rather than sort of, con despite its use, rather than continuing a sort of broad revival of imperial form, it opened the floodgates of just a remarkably diverse uh, selection of lettering styles that we see today. And so for me, 1989 truly 
marks the beginning of the post-typographic era. So although metal type uh, was largely abandoned in the 50s and 60s, it wasn't until postscript and the digital media that a viable alternative to metal type casting uh, came about. And so I realized that my use of post-typographic might not be obvious, uh, so I'm going to go into that a little bit. And the best way to do it is to ask, what is type? And the best answer to that question is Harry Carter's type is something that you can pick up and hold in your hand. Now, what Harry Carter was saying with this, type, this uh, sentence is he was not trying to just describe a physical characteristic of type. He was trying to locate the ontological essence that distinguished a typographic letter form from a calligraphic one. The idea being that although a letter cut in metal and cast in metal can be made to look like a calligraphic letter, what is it that makes typographic lettering distinct from calligraphic lettering? And what Carter decided was the main quality was its physical mass, the body on which it sits. And so this Q and U could be either calligraphic or typographic. But when you see that same Q and U on a body of type, you realize that what that Q and U can do is delineated by the rectilinear uh, borders of its body. So calligraphy, you can uh, write a letter that goes into the margin, that bumps into other letters, that overlaps other letters. But any effort to break that rectangular body in the typographic letter either requires a great deal of handwork or is impossible. And so it is that um, that distinguishes the typographic letter. And so here we have Carter's text set in Matthew Carter's Galliard type. It's a digital version, but it largely conforms to typographic rules. But if we change that to Hermann Zopf's Zopfino type, which is set at the exact same size as the previous one with the exact same letting, the letters not only bump into each other, they ride roughshod over one another. The reason they are able to do this is they are not typographic letters. Here is his, uh, this set in Zopfino with 100% letting. So imagine 18 point type with 18 points of lead and 18 point type. This is still bumping into each other. With type, that would be impossible without excessive breakage or the funding of an emperor. Uh, because the type in uh, the Teuerdank does do this. Um, but uh, short of Maximilian I funding your book project, uh, you know, this is not typographic. And so alphabets such as Zapfino are not typographic, they are digigraphic. Or for the purposes of this evening, they're post-typographic. And so... To begin to think of how these technologies affect the private press, we'll just keep going a little more with type, what type is. Type is heavy. This is 25 pounds of my Lisbon ornament, uh, which I used to print the cover of my book, Specimens of Diverse Characters, which I have here. It was only half as much as needed. I needed 50 pounds of type to print that one sheet of paper. This is a stack of ingots made to, used to make type. You know, they're big and they're heavy. This is a 60-point Albertus ampersand in the dirty cup holder of my car, which is there to show that not only is it heavy, it's big. You know, so it takes space. And so type, metal type, requires a certain amount of stability. It requires a certain amount of infrastructure. 
And from these things, from looking and thinking at these things, we can deduce some basic ideas. That typographic letter forms, like most heavy things, require infrastructure, and to a certain extent, they require a marketplace. They are not easily customizable, and they require a stable political structure in order to thrive. Not to exist, but to thrive. Uh, they are also predicated upon the existence of a shared worldview, whether real or imagined, among a large swath of people. A group of people, for instance, who when they think of the letter A, are thinking of roughly the same thing. So the Trajan inscription, the Aldine capital, and the Dove's type capitals, from the type design standpoint, these A's in these examples are radically different. But for the popular purposes, they look like A's. They're an A that looks like an A. And they're sort of predicated on this understanding that there is a large group of people who can recognize and decipher these letters. And they, so they're, they're just like to make 400 pounds of Albertus type and ship it across a border and then store it and use it um, because people will like it, um, the, the, the presence of a sort of recurring understanding among a gr broad group of people of what Ney looks like uh, is expressive of the sort of technological atmosphere of the typographic age. And it is that age that is the backdrop of the British private press. A, British pr a private press that is fundamentally interested in producing fine editions of canonical literary works. Um, that it, and their mission is to produce the most legible edition that will pay greatest homage to this text. You know, you print Dante, because Dante is the best poet that ever lived, right? You know that. All your friends know that. Everybody who might look at your books knows that. So you print Dante, because everybody needs a nice edition of Dante. Or you print Chaucer, or the Four Gospels, or you, you, you know, spend all your money and go bankrupt making a Bible, because it's what you've always wanted to do. Um, you know, and so this is a sort of private press that is you know, born of the same cultural attitudes as typographic lettering. And by contrast, calligraphic and digigraphic letter forms are light. They have no mass. So this is a page from Thomas Ingmeyer's work journal. Uh, and these are calligraphic letters that have no boundaries, no physical boundaries whatsoever, ever, except the boundaries of Thomas's remarkable mind, which, has, as far as I can tell, have no boundaries, has no boundaries. And these are the seven ampersands from Zopfino. So if you go back to Albertus and you think of that ampersand, imagine if he had seven Ampersands. You know, so <laughs> you multiply the weight and the storage and everything else by seven, and it's completely impractical. But with digigraphic or calligraphic lettering, uh, it's all in the ether. You know, each one of these probably took an extra hour to make. You know, um, and so calligraphic and digigraphic letter forms, like most light things, require neither infrastructure nor a marketplace and are easily customizable within specific small communities. They do not require a stable political structure in order to thrive, nor do they require a shared worldview among a large swath of people. In the most extreme sense, they require only one person to view a particular letter A as a letter A, but generally they are expressive of a localized legibility. 
And so what that meant in the calligraphic age is this is a, a page showing some pre-Caroline scripts that are designated not by uh, their time period so much or the nation in which, but the specific monastery in which they were written. And so the, the, a localized legibility or a small community of people sharing aesthetic preferences in the calligraphic age would mean a, people living in close proximity to one another. And they're working on a basic alphabetical theme, but customizing it within their one particular small community. In the digigraphic age, uh, the same thing is happening, but rather than being a localized community uh, that is in close proximity, you know, freezing in a monastery somewhere, it can be a globally dispersed community of people who are meeting online or through other digital media, but who, like those small communities, share aesthetic preferences that manifest themselves in the letter forms that they use. And so what that, you know, one easy example is the graffiti community. So this is a trickster, which is actually, this is remarkably legible if you just take a minute and look at it. It's a wild style of calligraphy. And any, or graffiti, any graffiti artist worldwide who practices this style would instantly know what this says. Instantly, it is perfectly legible within a small community. And it's pretty legible for all of us if you just sort of set aside certain prejudices. Um, but just so you don't think I'm just dealing with lowbrow people, this style of lettering is also employed by people as, you know, praiseworthy as Nicholas Benson in uh, some of his recent inscriptions, cut in stone, uh, drawing very heavily on calligra or graf <laughs> graffiti lettering. Um, extremely hard to read until you just sort of sit back and realize Oh, would have forever because, um, you know, it's actually really easy to read once you get into it. But again, it's highly personalized and it's not meant, nor is it predicated upon the existence of a large group of people who will read it. And just to continue into, uh, I use the word typeface even though I want to use digiface, but it's such an ugly word. Uh, this is Mark Anderson's not Caslon typeface. Uh, Again, I find this re revolting personally, but the uh, uh, but it is wonderful. You know, it immediately signifies uh, to the community of people who respond to this. It's a hyper personalized um, type, and so that like typography being the background of the British private press, metal type, heavy things, broad community of people sharing a canonic an idea of a canon. Uh, Printers like me who are working today, the backdrop is different. The backdrop is this. It's digigraphic world. It's highly personalized. And, and so I've been working on books for years that have been going in these directions. And then one day I sort of started looking around and seeing that I wasn't pioneering something. I was part of a, uh, a movement of people who were doing similar things. And I've been able to deduce two main themes in the post-typographic private press. And so the first one is alphabetical diversity, uh, which is reminiscent of the calligraphic era, achieved through a combination of the materials and technology of the industrial and digital ages, and usually reflective of an abandonment of the imperial alphabetical model. So I just sent, I'm going to show some examples of other people's work, maybe one of mine, and then we'll look at books. So. Uh, this is the B by Pat Randall of Nomad Press and his occasional print club. 
Pat is uh, maybe best known at the moment as the son of John Randall of Whittington Press, uh, but he is really doing some remarkable stuff. And he has this group of friends, and they descend on a print shop somewhere in Europe and just wreak havoc for a day and use all their uh, typographic material to make these really innovative prints that um, uh, are really rejoice in alphabetical diversity. And, uh, and then this is another print of his which uses traditional handset metal type combined with uh, laser-cut uh, wood type made by Tommy Mayo of this sort of overblown F. And so he's, he's drawing both on the typographic and the digital uh, technologies, making something in a traditional method that is very uh, much of our time. Um, another, oh, there, he sent a nice photograph of the F, you know, which is just ridiculous and wonderful. And, uh, and then uh, there's Jen Farrell, who's uh, working in Chicago, and she's drawing more on the um, sort of artistic printing, 19th century artistic printing uh, tradition, but again, applying it in ways that is very contemporary, uh, despite her love of all these crazy ornamented typefaces. And uh, she unfortunately is mainly devoting her energies to job work, but she just made a book, and it's sold out, and so hopefully she'll start making books. But she keeps this great blog and uh, uh, takes photographs of the type forms. This is another one of her uh, herbs in orto. She's amazing, really amazing stuff. And then for me, what, uh, what this alphabetical diversity means is that I try to print from typefaces that I design and uh, but rather than going and you know calling up uh, you know Mr. Morrison and saying, well, uh, do you think I should use Bembo for everything? Um, I, I'm completely unsatisfied to use the same letter over and over, and so I, I design a lot of types, and uh, um, I don't use them as adventurously as those two people do, but I'm getting there. And, uh, and then, but this idea of you know, moving away from, I'll just show one page from my book of Jonah, uh, which is handset in a foundry type, which I designed called Nicholas. And uh, you know, as far as moving away from that imperial or typographic not model, uh, you know, I purposefully with this book took every rule of legibility uh, from the early 20th century and just chucked it out the window. And uh, I'm very happy with where this is going. I think this is uh, my future. But anyway, so the second theme is the printer as narrative engine, as manifested in the abandonment or hyper personalization of canonical literary works. And uh, so for this idea, there's no greater example than uh, Gaylord Chenelec and Ben Verhoeven's Silva book, which, if you don't know it, um, is a book that is about the woods on Gaylord's property. It illustrates the wood by wood engraving and wood cut made from the wood itself. Ben Verhoeven has found a series of anecdotal uh, written a series of anecdotal texts that relate either directly or obliquely to that wood. And then Gaylord has read a, written a second text um, about the printing of that wood. So, the, the, I mean, it's just like a black hole. You can't get out, you know, the, it's so, it only exists, like it's, you know, that black matter that we're looking for. It only exists within itself and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's fantastic. And, but again, he uses traditional typography, he uses Bembo for everything, and, uh, but he's making something that's completely contemporary. Um, and then in his new Loft de Plure 
uh, again, he's taken, rather than printing a single text, he's taken 25 uh, historical texts about a stretch of the Mississippi River and then cut them up and reordered them in a way to make his own text out of historical text. This is the biggest um, trend that I'm seeing um, in contemporary private press. And a more uh, sort of uh, crazier example of that is Emily Martin's book Desdemona in her own words, where uh, Emily was um, disturbed and dismayed by how passive a person Desdemona was. And uh, so what she did is she decided to take every word that Desdemona said in Othello and then make a piece of magnetic poetry out of it. And the book comes with this steel-lined box with the whole set of magnetic poetry. And she said a bunch of poems, uh, wrote a bunch of poems with these magnets that turned Desdemona suddenly into an active, strong woman. And she does these great prints um, out of cut metal that she sticks onto a magnet and inks and prints on a Vandercook and foam and everything. And this one says, I am not some token to be moved between men with motives of their own and no regard for me. You know, and yeah! Um, uh, um, yeah she's great. Um, and then finally, the last example of this um, theme is Invisible Cities by Jean-Pierre Hébert and Editions Reese, which I think is the finest example of digital technology in a book ever. Um, the, the text is cut up from Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. Um, the artist created digital images that are reminiscent of both deep space and, and uh, cartographic planning, and they're randomized somehow. I don't understand digital stuff very well. And then they're printed digitally, and then Sandra handset the text in uh, Gil Sands, and each one has a misostic running through it, which says the name of the city that they're talking about. And they've recreated this new text from an existing text. Um, and if you don't, if you're a librarian and you don't have this book, get one. It's amazing. Um, this is another page, and uh, and that's it. And then we're on to actual books and. Uh, um, so we can decide to either do some questions now, or it might be easier, or do them while paging through books, whatever you think. Let's take questions now. Okay. It's yeah. fine with me. Any questions? <laughs> Boy, a real conversation stopper, huh? <laughs> yeah. John. Yes. Oh, I make them all the time. The, uh, um, well, I, that's a tricky question. I, I'm making, most of my type I print from polymer plates, so I design it digitally, and I set it digitally, and I run output a piece of film, and I make a polymer plate. This is out of necessity for someone who designs a lot of typefaces. I can't afford, nor can a type foundry manage to make everyone into metal. Um, however, when I design digitally, I design, uh, which admittedly is a conceit, but it's because I like it and it's easier, quite honestly. I design as if it's metal type. So I design each letter and I put it on a fixed set width as if it had physical sides. I make no kerning pairs, 
So there's no program that makes something tuck under something else automatically if it happens to uh, come in succession. And then I make, if I need letters that are going to occur, and I make ligatures uh, of those letters, and I use them as ligatures digitally. The reasons I do that for two reasons, and I don't use any digital measuring tools, and I align them entirely by eye. I don't, um, and I do that for two reasons. One, it is a lot easier than making every set of kerning pairs under, you know, imaginable. I don't want to spend my time in front of a computer if I can help it. Um, and the other is that I like, I think the, the worst quality of contemporary type design is this obsessive desire to make uniform black and white space. When I look at most digital typefaces or digifaces, um, they just make me want to go to sleep. You know, and, uh, and so the qualities that I like, of, you know, particularly in pre industrial typefaces, is that irregularity that comes just from, this, uh, from the serendipity of one letter coming after another. And uh, so I try to recreate that as best I can. And then, it, as it happens, it makes converting those typefaces to metal much easier. Because all of the work that a metal foundry needs, like where does this go side to side on a piece of metal, is figured out in advance. So I've sort of designed all my typefaces with the hope that one day they'll be made into metal, but I can't afford it. And type founders are slow. <laughs> you know, it takes time. <laughs> they won't devote every minute to me. Um, which is a critical flaw. Yeah. Uh, yes. You? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, could you bring that on the screen your Nicholas typeface? Oh, sure. Run us through a, a, your description of that typeface and how it, um, how you see it in the. Yes. Local, local, local. I, I would be happy to. I, I, the, the, it's called Nicholas because it, the original inspiration for it is the altarpiece done by Nicholas of Verdun uh, in 1181, which is an altarpiece that. Um, is composed of 51 gold panels, each uh, of Champlevé enamel, each with a tripartite arch with an illustration of a biblical scene, and the arch is surrounded by this really wonderful, meaty, robust lettering. Um, and I love it. I love uh, his letters. And for years, I tried to draw them. And every time I did, and I stepped back, what I got looked like a greeting card uh, or some wonky, you know, uh, American private press thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, and it just, it just looked stupid. It looked like this is a Champlevé enamel letter. It's not typographic, and I'm trying to make type out of it, and it doesn't work. And, uh, and it just looks too, you know, imitative or whatever. And so... Finally, one day, I just sat down with a pencil and a piece of paper, and I drew this alphabet uh, thinking of Nicholas's letters. Um, and so it, is, uh, so it embodies the characteristics of his lettering that I really like. Very fleshy uh, letters that are, uh, have spiky serifs that don't align perfectly. I mean, aligning this type, uh, even to get it here, was really impossible and uh, um, 
And so it is a 21st century type that is inspired by 12th century Mozan lettering. Um, and the, but in the setting of it, uh, so I got a bunch of the type. Uh, um, we released this, the Dale Guild released this typeface as a new metal type that other people could buy. Usually I just don't let other people use my type. And in exchange for doing that, I got a lot of it. And I just spent the summer sort of playing around with it. And I, part of the inspiration is I, I love the, um, uh, I love medieval tessellated mosaics inscriptions um, that are often in the apse of a church. Or, um, and so the, the inspiration for this layout was uh, um, I was trying to get away from the 20th, 20th century, particularly, model of what a typographic page should be and get to what my inspiration was. And so that, you know, when people look at this type, they think, oh, it's a titling face. You put one word in it or whatever. I always intended it to be used as a running text face. And so, uh, I, so I just did some simple things. I laid it out horizontally like those inscriptions that I like so much. Um, I put the same amount of space between the words as between the lines uh, to make it almost, um, to not give it an obvious um, vertical or horizontal push, even though it's clearly horizontal. Um, and I just tried to see how far I could push it, uh, how much little, the smallest space I could give between where it would still be readable. And to my surprise, a lot of people who, when they first got this book, were like, you know, where's the lowercase, um, uh, have reported back that they find it quite easy to read. And uh, so that's the story on that. Yes? Um, you probably, I'm sure you've read um, Michael Rosam's essay. Mm -hmm. His sad little essay, yes. Right, right, right. Which, uh, just to, to summarize, is talking about the limitations of audience, fine press, um, mm -hmm. the number, and the distribution, and, and the expense of these books. And then, um, what do you, how do you feel about that in terms of, uh, and I don't think you talked about how many copies of these prints right. were made, and, and the audience for them, and, um, and are you concerned about people actually reading through them? Could you... Well, the, my, my interpretation of Michael's uh, essay is that he was disillusioned when he learned that people who bought his very expensive books did not read them. Mm -hmm. um, and the, uh, however sad that might be, um, when you make something and you sell it to someone, it's really none of your business how they use it. And... Um, that's how I feel, basically. I want people to read my books, but I don't make it a condition of sale. I need to live off of my books, and if you want to buy it and you know put it in a locker with Davy Jones, that's your business, you know. Um, but the uh, but I find that actually um, people do read my books. Um, the but only 50 people read my books, you know? And every attempt that I've made to make larger editions to try to reach a wider audience have been miserable failures. Um, and so I make, uh, with Jonah, I made 80 copies with the, uh, so we have copies, books that are 55 to 120 copies on the, uh, on the counter. And then there's one facsimile 
of one of my books uh, that was printed in 750 copies and it's uh, affordable and it sells and everything but it's nothing you know I mean it's a beautiful facsimile but it's nothing like the original um, so I find that I sell to rare book libraries and individuals uh, fairly evenly now um, 50-50 and Almost all of the libraries that buy my books use them in a curriculum. Um, they show them very regularly. Uh, they are attentive to them. And they get used much more than uh, I would ever expect my books to be used. Um, yeah, uh, did that really answer the question? OK, yeah. Uh, he was first, and then I'll go to. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about how you see this as a non-imperial project? Uh, well, um, the there are a couple of ways. I don't see every book of mine as um, satisfying all of the criteria that I set out. First of all, uh, I am uh, I really do consider myself who's as someone who is working through. Ideas and um, the uh, when I say the imperial model that this is moving away from the imperial alphabetical model, um, it is a bit disingenuous because, of course, these are large capital letters that are arranged in a horizontal row. Um, they are not, however, the kind of large capital letters um, that one would naturally associate with. So it, a good instance would be people's reactions to the Doves Press and the Kelmscott Press. You know, uh, I like what William Morris was trying to do. I've heard that today, and I, I, uh, I'm not saying that. I'm re repeating what someone else said today. Um, and then other people will be like, oh, but it, you know, he's talking about legibility, but he makes these ugly letter forms and you can't read them and everything else. And then the Dove's Press would be the sort of imperial model as opposed to, so the, if you accept the idea that the imperial revival that happened in the Italian Renaissance happened in part in response to medieval lettering, um, then this would be non-imperial, I guess is the way of saying it. Yes? I hope I can frame this right. Um, okay. My question is basically about readability. And uh -huh. I'm coming at this, I'm kind of an interloper, I'm a poet, just thinking about a test class here. Right. Anyway, um, Good. this comes up with most <laughs> all the time, like the idea that the poem teaches the reader how to read it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I guess my question is, um, where, like, is there a point where you know, like, when you're making, when you're making the type and then also laying it out, like, do you think about that in terms of readability, or is there ever been any one kind of type font that you've made that you feel like this is just a failure, like it's too obscure? Um, oh, definitely. Yeah, I don't show those usually. <laughs> um, I mean, the you know. This whole business that legibility is a science, um, which is uh, what a lot of early 20th century um, scholars tried to uh, make people believe, is, is I 
think, complete bunk. Um, legibility is nothing more than shared aesthetic preference um, among a specific group of people. And But um, with that said, there are certain typefaces that um, uh, people do say, oh, that's easy to read, you know, and... Uh, and so sometimes I try to purposefully mess with that. Like one of my ideas with this was to purposefully slow people down um, and to say that this is not, I'm not just conveying textual content. Go to Google for that. Um, I am making an object that is inspired by and sort of physically representative of a text and you are meant to be patient and spend time with it to understand it, and uh, um, and so this is one of the this was one of the premises that uh, Michael Russom uh, rests on this idea that was promulgated by particularly by Beatrice Ward uh, that the um, the type is just there to serve the text and convey the text and every other aspect um, uh, should fall away from that, and that's all very well and good um, if you're making a Kindle, but it's not well and good if you're. Same thing exists yeah. in writing theory too. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Right. And one of the, you know, this is the uh, interesting point is that the books that are being made by people like me are not just conveyors of the text, they should be treated in a Encountered like other art forms, just like that, where um, the it's not just at the service of an industry that this is happening. Yeah. Well, one, you know, one of the one of the the basic reality is that I make physical books because I'm a printer. Um, the I love physical books, and so I my point, I guess, is that the um, the motivations that are causing the content, the graphic and literary content of my books, are informed by my technological and political and social environment. Um, but I am still making books. And part of the reason that I'm able, and other people like Gaylord and are able to make these books that are not strictly um, about conveying text is partly in gratitude to the, the advent of digital technology. And I think that the advent of digital, digiographic and digital technology is having a similar effect on printed books that uh, photography had on painting, um, where it is releasing the book from the burden of utility, basically. And so, the, so if you're going to, I love my Kindle. I read on a Kindle all the time. And uh, um, but the the books that I'm making are not about that uh, specifically. They're definitely. I love literature, and I, my books are very. Uh, intimately connected with literature, but the 
but the the technology of the day does not mean I need to be a slave to it, just in the way that the British private press was reacting against the industrial technology and using it uh, in ways that they often didn't want you to know about. Um, and uh, so that's the point. I'm not saying that because of this technology, everybody needs to make digital things. Um, it's just worth you know, paying attention to the environment in which these books are being made, which aids in the understanding of them. Yeah. Is it fair to say, Russell, that part of um, the attraction of what you're doing is that your art is fundamentally paradoxical? <laughs> you are making typographic books that are deeply inflected by epigraphy, right. and that typographic realization is brought into the world through the digital domain. Right. So that you're making codices via digital means in homage to typography that's inflected by epigraphy. <laughs> right. Is that fair? <laughs> It sounds pretty good to me. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, it's fair. I mean, you know, we we are all cosmoses. What's the plural of cosmos? Uh, Cosmosi? Yeah. Um, And so, you know, I mean, I can come up with themes all day, but it's impossible to write one's own history. You know, it's like the, um, it might be just, junk, you know, that <laughs> 50 years, they're like, well, what are these idiots doing? You know, it's uh, inflected by epigraphy through digital, you know, but I don't think it is, but the, uh, um, but yeah, it's full of contradictions, full of contradictions. And, you know, as an example of that, the, I, the medieval lettering and design principles are what I claim to be most inspired by, and yet when I make most of my printed books, it looks like a damn Renaissance page, and I just, uh, I think I've finally figured out how to draw on medieval uh, layout in contemporary work, and that's the next big uh, thing in a few years that I'm working toward, Um, but uh, really up to this point, I've been largely unsuccessful at it. so you know, there's a, there's the perfect contradiction in uh, uh, yeah. paradoxical but not contradictory. Right. Yes. Um, shall we thank Russell and then look at the book? <laughs> thank you.